is Extra Time. Hello and welcome to River Radio. It's 7pm and time for the station's resident football show. Joining me tonight is our regular panel of Ben Green and Will Taylor. I'm Ed Salton, so let's kick off tonight's action. This week we talk Euro 2028, as the UK and Ireland occupy pole position to host the tournament. Barcelona beat Real Madrid 4-0 in El Clasico, but are the Catalan giants truly back to their best? And we also talk Thames Valley, as Reading and Wickham pick up more positive results. All that and more to come on tonight's episode of Extra Time. Yes, good evening and welcome to this week's episode of Extra Time. It's great to be back once again as we get stuck into the biggest football stories to have emerged over the last week. Joining me tonight, as you heard, are Will Taylor and Ben Green, who look ready as ever to kick off tonight's show. But we do, of course, want to hear from you, the listeners, as well. Remember to get in touch with the studio. Just tweet us using at River Radio Live or send an email to studio at river.radio. Gents, it's a a busy one tonight. You're both aware of that, but we're never too busy to check in with you first and foremost how the devil are you yeah i'm all right i'm all right mate are you yeah I'm, I'm delighted to be here again i mean i have to say by the way taylor tarleton and green for the first back-to-back two weeks that, i can't remember it? the last time that's no, happened. i can't remember the last time that's happened either it's a, a formidable trio some might say a L- lot of injury problems yeah. <laughs> behind the scenes <laughs> certainly really uh, ben yeah. we'll, we'll start with yourself wickham wanderers promotion efforts do continue very tight at the top after that nil nil draw at portsmouth which we'll get stuck into properly later seven games to go it, it really is squeaky bum time now isn't it as sir alex would say oh, the final seven games you just really can tell that everything is hotting up um we've got a little bit of a break coming up and i know that after that it's going to be a ferocious end to the season just praying that wickham can put a good run together absolutely praying well i think we're all hopeful that we certainly see them in that playoff contention right towards the end of the season we'll turning to yourself you've not been well this week but have still struggled in valiantly i yeah, may yeah. i may say so top marks for that you're feeling a, a little bit better at least we, we hope i mean uh, we mentioned it there and Ben said, you know, the season, it's rapidly drawing to a close. Just as a fan per se, this is such a great time of year, isn't it? Because across the divisions, a lot of games really do matter, don't they? They do. I mean, like, like you mentioned, past the late fitness test, mate. So recommended <laughs> recommended no more than 60 minutes action. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, but yeah, mate, of course, it's, it's thrilling, isn't it? I mean, as, as a fan of certain clubs, it sort of boils down a little bit. I can't see my team getting there. But the 4-0 win last night, but I can't see my team talking about getting too near the playoffs. But I think that the whole playoff sort of the, the the sort of roller coaster of the playoffs and everything and the scraps at the bottom for relegation, the title races, it just it just it's what everything boils down to, isn't it? It makes it so exciting. So I, I personally can't wait, just as a football fan, to sort of watch it all unfold. Um, certainly in the cases of our local clubs and beyond as well. Torquay, as you say, look, look set probably to miss out on the promotion conversation this year. But in the National League, there's only there's only one automatic promotion spot. Does that does that seem fair to you? It, it does, to me, seem a little bit harsh that you could finish second in the league and, and not be guaranteed a place in the division above next year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a bit, a bit early for an unpo- for offside yeah, opinion. Here we go again. Here we go again. 
Uh, but I mean, that's certainly what happened with Torquay last year. You'd argue one of, if not the best team in the league, but but ended up finishing second, just how it worked out. And and obviously st- stayed in the division. It's not necessarily the fairest way of doing things, in, in my opinion. But at the same time, you know, it, the, the, it's not been changed for a reason, I suppose. So you've got to sort of respect what it is. And, and the teams that go up generally do quite do do quite well. I mean, Sutton now are in, who went up as champions last year, they're in the playoffs for in League Two now. So And of course, they'll be contesting the, uh, the, the trophy final, won't yeah, they? Yeah, the Papa John's at, trophy, Wembley, the Papa John's trophy. Yeah, so yeah. best of luck to them in that. They'll be facing Rotherham, of course, who are, who are absolutely, you know, running away with Flying. League One at the moment. <laughs> that will be a really interesting game. I'm at that one. So mm. really looking forward to that. But as I mentioned, is a busy show that we have in store tonight. So let's crack on. And we'll start with the news that the UK and Ireland have submitted a bid to host Euro 2028. Italy had looked to pose perhaps the strongest threat to that proposal, but are now considered to be more likely to target the 2032 event instead. Other nations believed to have expressed an interest in hosting are Turkey and Russia, the latter of whom are currently banned from international football following the country's invasion of Ukraine. Gents, first and foremost, how exciting do you think this this bid really is and the prospect of having tournament football return after last summer, of course, which which was great for everyone? Yeah, it's interesting that it's the UK and Ireland, isn't it? I mean, how, I'm interested to see how that's exactly going to work. So what, and I can't really think of any ground they've got other than the Aviva. The Aviva, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, the final will be at Wembley. I'm mm. assuming the semi-finals will be at Wembley. So, it's going to be similar similar to the last tournament where it was almost unofficially England's tournament, isn't mm. it? So it's going to be great for us because we know it's probably going to be another final at Wembley and how great was that last time seeing England get there? Um, it's obviously just a case of logistically, I mean, I'm very interested to see how that's actually going to pan out. Yeah, I mean, ironically, it's a bit like London Bus, isn't it? Isn't it? Because as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> Euro 2020 was a home tournament. Essentially, yeah. five of the six games at home, I think, wasn't it, in the end? So it's, um, it, you know, after not having anything since, you know, obviously it was Euro 96 and 66, it's a big gap to then suddenly almost have two within within eight years um, or seven years actually because obviously it was put back here I, it's, it's exciting but I, I do the idea of a, of a Euros doesn't excite me quite as much as a home World Cup, World Cup I have to be yeah. honest I think that that's uh, that's something I, I, I can't be picky obviously because you can you can only sort of deal with what you're given but uh, but yeah I, it, a World Cup would be better for me after essentially having a home Euros this summer as far as I'm concerned I mean it's interesting isn't it I mean I look at the statements that, that we've got here it says the governments of the UK Ireland Scotland and Wales have confirmed their support for the expression of interest in submission and given the Northern Ireland executive is currently not meeting formally officials there continue to observe the process closely now I mean one thing that that as we've said before you know you look at things like the Olympics for example where we don't send a GB football team the only time we've done that of course is 2012 but to have them all working together I think is a is a really positive step and and as you say Ireland are on board for this as well which I think makes us certainly a, a, a very uh, exciting prospect as as hosts that much I don't think can realistically be disputed when we look back at Euro 2020 though that was spread out of course across the continent and the point of that was to give countries who perhaps could couldn't feasibly host an entire tournament a taste of what it was like to host a tournament did you like that or or did you did you think that perhaps it, it was better to have it concentrated in one place yeah for me i, I really like the idea of of whole cities being taken over um, in one country I think I don't mind it being split across two I think the, the Poland-Ukraine one was it Euro 2012 it might have been yeah. was was brilliant um, 2008. Uh, 2008 the one we yeah. weren't at yeah, yeah there you go exactly so yeah I think I think ones like that work really really well they're, they're really nice tournaments but it, it just didn't feel right playing three games at Wembley or four games at Wembley I think it was and then going to Rome 
and then coming back, it just felt a little bit odd. I think, and I, I, to be honest, I think it, it we, we valued from playing so many games at Wembley. I don't think it's particularly ideal to be flying. I think Wales had to fly to Kazakhstan or mm, something. Didn't they had they? a bad, bad route. They had a, they had a, a sort of bad route to thing, which just doesn't seem that fair. Whereas if I, I like the idea of having a base in one country and and travelling across the country for these games, I think it brings football sort of more synonymously to those fans that are there as well. So I, I, I think it worked. I think it was good, but for me, I, I can't shake the idea of having it in one country that that is what tournament football at a world level is all about yeah I mean I agree I, I think it worked last time partly because it was exceptional circumstances wasn't it we were still coming out of the whole COVID thing and mm. certain countries had less restrictions and others I, I, but for me I'm like Will I love tournament football I love international tournament football there's nothing better than an international tournament however there's a special feeling when it's just in one place. Like we saw with the semi-finals and the final in England, the whole country reached fever pitch. Can you imagine what it would have been like if the entire tournament was here? Yeah. So, no, I'm a massive fan of it being in one country. I think the country can get behind it. And, uh, yeah, it was it was good at the time, but I'm, I'm hoping they don't continue to do it. As an England fan as well, I think justifiably there would have been some pretty serious question marks over fairness. As you said, Will, that we played five of our six games in our home stadium but weren't technically the hosts. To me, it was a difficult one to kind of get my head around. You know, we played Scotland, but inexplicably that game was played at Wembley rather than, than, um, you know, the the stadium up there, Hampden Park, which I found a bit curious given that we played so many of our games at home. It, It did feel unfair in a sense, and I feel the only team who should really justify we have that kind of advantage are the host country who of course don't have to qualify for a tournament which makes perfect sense to me well joining us now on the line is our regular contributor and the founder of very biased opinions doubtless we're going to get complete objectivity from him at this point though tom pickering tom great to have you with us just quickly how do you feel about a potentially successful bid to host the euros all right, all thanks for having me on. Um, I, I kind of agree. I think, you know, the final and probably the semifinals are going to be at Wembley, and I'm, I'm really, really excited for this. I've, I've been to the World Cup in Germany. I've been to the World Cup in France. Obviously, we had the Euro not, finals not as a player. here, and it was, it's, such an, <laughs> it's such an incredible atmosphere. But, you know, for the past decade or so, football's just been whispering to us, giving these, us these little nuggets saying that it's going to come home and uh Favorable draws in the Euros and the World Cup, penalty shootout wins. We've had some victories over Germany, but football keeps eluding us. And I'm just, we keep finding new ways to give it away to other people. But the siren song is getting louder and louder. And hosting <laughs> other international football tournament, you know. I'm really excited and I, for one, am excited to see football coming home. I mean, uh, alongside, obviously, the practical questions about, you know, football, just being in the country, having that tournament um, sense that, that you and I are old enough to remember, Will and Ben, uh, sadly, to, to their, to their you know, just, uh, I feel sorry for you guys that, that you weren't you able to, to experience it. Yeah, I, it was a disservice to you that you weren't born earlier because you're in 96. I mean, the thing was, there are certain tournaments that do stick in your mind. Curiously, I would say that the expectations of, say, Russia 2018, because of the controversy surrounding how they were awarded it in the first place, actually surpassed a lot of expectations because those expectations, I felt, were actually quite low. But Euro 96 was a, a phenomenal tournament and it was, as you say, it took over the country. It was literally everywhere. And the prospect of that is so, so exciting. But beyond that, there's there's other sorts of things that, that go with this bid. You know, the kind of investments we might see in things like grassroots football and infrastructure in towns and cities, which could be a real catalyst for growth. Tom, where do you think we might we might see the game kind of develop as a result of a successful bid if we are named as the host nations on the 7th of April? 
I mean, I think it'd be really great, especially with the introduction of, of having games in uh, all, all over the UK and in Ireland, especially for building a bit of infrastructure in, and, and dropping some of that money that we get into the grassroots of the game and getting those 3G, 4G pitches built, which we know are the lifeblood of football now because of the weather and the ground we're playing on and the fact that so many pitches are waterlogged in trouble dropping some of this money that we get out of this tournament into these, you know, purpose-built world-class facilities that kids can play on to get an even bigger base of players. And being able to spread that out over the whole UK will benefit so many more people, not just England. Um, you know, hopefully that's where the money goes and it, it should have be a real boon for, for all the countries and their national sides. And of course, it's not that long, in fact, since we did host an international tournament. No, I'm not talking about Euro 2020 this time because we did have that, that big spectacle 10 years ago, the London 2012 Olympics. Now, I'm interested in this question particularly because the strapline of that, which I'm sure we all remember, was to inspire a generation. But many have since said that the kind of legacy element kind of fell short of of expectations because that phrase again that slogan was was everywhere how important is it that this euro 2028 bid if ultimately successful that we learn from that and make sure that whatever legacy there is proves enduring do you think i think it's it's hugely important the the london 2012 had such a grandiose vision but there was absolutely no follow-through to it i think you saw that you've seen that with the uh the uh, West Ham in their stadium and the fact that there was nothing actually planned for the Olympic Stadium. The one good thing we have is we don't need to purpose build any stadiums. We are probably the best set country in Europe to host this tournament. We have so many world-class grounds of 40,000 seater plus stadiums. So hopefully the legacy of the FAs can all come together and invest most of this money in the grassroots because that's really where your legacy comes from and they have the ability to do that right now. So it'd be great to see them and that really should be the overriding legacy of this tournament. Well, I was going to talk about London 2012 because I know you mentioned it and I'm, I'm sure Will was the same as we, we were at an age where that entire slogan was basically for us. Yeah. So from the age of five... Just when you I, too. Uh, just, uh, just me and Will. <laughs> ben, yeah, yeah, just me and Will. Yeah. But from the age of five when we got the tournament to the age of 12, all I heard about, what I read about was that slogan that the Olympics were coming. And so I, I think in terms of my generation... Not to, you know, make a dig at you, Ed. <laughs> wow. You on straight uh, uh, yeah, so you talked about how we had a full deck for the second week yeah. in a row. <laughs> but I think in terms of my generation, it left a massive imprint. Like I, I still have huge memories of that. However, I think what was lacking was, like you said, the infrastructure afterwards to actually implement what kids were feeling. We saw a massive boom in cycling, for example, and then it kind of died off for a couple of years. So I think the real challenge would be, okay, you're going to have a whole generation of kids that are going to be so inspired to play sport, not just football. And then how can you actually get them doing that for a sustained period of time? Yeah, yeah, we've spoke about this before as well, about sort of, uh, like, like you say, infrastructure and making things readily available for people. And I think the Olympics were great and that whole slogan was brilliant and it certainly did encapsulate our age bracket, mm -hmm. I think, Ben. I think that's fair to say. But the, the problem with it is that actually sort of 90% of Olympic sports aren't, aren't sort of accessible, are yeah. they? To, to be completely honest, not, there's not that many Olympic-sized swimming pools knocking about. You know, tennis courts aren't particularly easy to come by. Do you know what I mean? I, I just don't think that it's that accessible to be able to get hold of. Football is completely different. And I think I think it was like a warm-up this year, wasn't it? And I certainly haven't seen as many people interested in football as I did this summer. And, and certainly the summer of 2018 as well, people were, were all over it. People that I didn't even know liked football going mad for England. And, and that's what it's all about, isn't it? So... 
I, I think it's really the other the other important thing is as well that we've we've managed to to get a really good group of young players here, and I think that's due to this whole golden generation and being being able to see just how you know the life of a footballer. Although it didn't work out for them, that that team was just completely star studded, wasn't it? And I think that's what inspired a lot of the young players we've got now. It's carrying that on and making sure that the, the, the next group of players is just as good because we've seen it with Germany and we've seen it with Spain that they produce these incredible players but they're sort of lacking a little bit now and, and unable to find you know there's that you can't replace a Xavi and an Iniesta can you or a Fernando Torres or any of these players and one does wonder what what Belgium will look back and yeah. think oh. about this golden generation yeah. akin to the English one of perhaps 20 years ago and, and it becomes a question of what might have been and the amount of articles I see now about what England could have done with that team versus what they actually did it it comes down and again weirdly I would say the same with London 2012 it's the expectation of what inspire a generation means versus the reality I've no doubt mm. you know at the next Olympics we will see videos of athletes in the build-up talking about how that really inspired a generation but I think the sense was broadly speaking we could say that for so many more than actually will will perhaps necessarily be the case but that's the nature of the beast it's certainly an exciting prospect nonetheless and, and with only two rival bids confirmation as to who will host Euro 2028 is expected, as I mentioned, on the 7th of April. Moving on to domestic football now, but nevertheless sticking with our continental theme, it's time to touch on the resurgence of a recently fallen giant. Barcelona have become one of the biggest forces in European football. Indeed, they have been for generations, but recent financial difficulties prompted a rather spectacular fall from grace, underlined, of course, by the departure of Lionel Messi to PSG. However, the return of club legend Xavi in a man managerial role has prompted an upturn in form. The club went into the latest edition of El Clasico against Real Madrid unbeaten in their last 12 league matches and ruthlessly dispatched Carlo Ancelotti's league leaders on their own turf by four goals to nil, prompting much media coverage suggesting the Catalans are heading back to their best. Tom, we'll start with yourself once again. This was an emphatic win, wasn't it? Is there a sense that Xavi is starting to rebuild this side into one to, to really be reckoned with, do you think? I mean, it's, it's an absolutely stunning victory. They they could have even had more, I think, arguably. Uh, and there's no denying that Xavi's brought a bit of a winning spirit back and kind of is holding the team to a higher level, which is what they needed. Uh, he, he's been really helped out by uh, the signings in the winter, especially having an Aubameyang and a Torres come in, which he, I think Luke de Jong or something was starting up front before that, which is does not inspire <laughs> a lot of confidence in you when you're a world-class side. They're definitely performing better. I think this is a bit of a good run. Um, Aubameyang, especially as a striker, has blown hot and cold throughout his entire career. So I'm not completely sold that this is the complete resurgence of them. And they're so far behind Real at this stage. But it's it's a really good sign. And I think Xavi is proving that he is actually a good manager and that his, his clout on the football pitch is translating as a manager. And it's, it's, it's good to see because when he came in, it, it looked a little bit choppy at the beginning. It absolutely did. I think you're right. I mean, how good would it be to see Barcelona sort of reinstated to that elite of European football? Not in the Super League sense that we spoke about last week, but just in, <laughs> just in the sense of, of rubbing shoulders at the top of the Champions League again. Because obviously it's, we're facing the prospect of, of, of them playing West Ham in the Europa League, which just seems absolutely crazy. How good would it be to see them get back right to the very top? Because they were just incredible to watch for so long, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, you, you want to see them in European Cup semi-finals, And, you know, all due respect to David Moyes and West Ham, you don't expect to see West Ham playing Barcelona <laughs> in a quarterfinal or semi-final. You want to see your Juventuses, your your Man Uniteds, your Cities, your Chelsea's, your PSG's. And that it, it will be great to see them back up there because that is why you watch football. That's why we've all watched football. And um, 
I think it would be absolutely fantastic to have him back in the Champions League and at least competing to some level. I mean, Tom, I noticed you said uh, a second ago about how Xavi proven himself to be a great manager. I'm not classing you necessarily as the, the wider sporting press. However, is there a chance <laughs> we're getting a little carried away here? You know, that he's only been in charge since November. It could be argued that the club's decline actually began, began slightly before his appointment and the, the predecessor, Ronald Koeman. So are we sort of jumping the gun here a little bit? I think I think we probably are. They they have aging stars. Uh, <laughs> you share the honesty, don't you? <laughs> I, I, yeah, I don't want to get completely caught out. And we don't we don't really know how good their youth system is. It used to be a legendary youth system that produced Xavi and Iniesta and had a young Lionel Messi training at it. But I think what we are seeing from Xavi is a much more organised side and a side that are really attempting to achieve. Whereas the side we saw under uh, under Komen was diabolically just poor and lacking any sort of motivation on the pitch so i think we're getting getting a little bit you know ahead of ourselves here but all the right signs are here that chavi's come in and is beginning to write a ship and it's 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 the investment and it's what barcelona can do now over the next year or two to bring themselves back up to that level but you know it, it it's positive signs and it, there's no reason to discount that right now Tom, one question I, I do have to ask you. We've known each other a long time. You know my, my views on football. We've coached together. And, uh, you know, as a result, you'll probably understand why I'm asking you this. You're a Manchester United fan. One question I, I do have to address with you is in the aftermath of that win at the Bernabeu, apparently Xavi and his coaching staff went and, and had a picture by the pitch after the game. Now, I suspect Roy Keane wouldn't respond terribly favourably to that. But what's your what's your take on it? I mean, Roy's famous for not responding positively to quite a lot of things. But um, uh, honestly, I, I kind of enjoyed it, uh, especially when you look at how poor Barcelona have been. To, to go there and thrash them 4-0, just, just, just go, yeah, I don't know, I enjoy it. I like seeing teams taking the piss a little bit and, you know, bigging themselves up and doing stuff to, to rile up the opposition. It's a, cra- it's a curious one, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, I mean, I certainly remember reading it in Gareth uh, Southgate's autobiography about having a, a team photograph um, while he was a member of John Gregory's Aston Villa squad. And, and after the end of a game, I think it might have been at Southampton, John Gregory took them all to the middle of the pitch and, and said to Southgate, we're having a photo. And Southgate said, what for? And, and Gregory went, oh, we're having a photograph for the Villa team that's made the best ever start to a Premier League season. And Southgate was like, what? What trophy do you get for that? <laughs> and apparently, when they went to when they went on England duty, um, the first thing Alan Shearer said to him was, "All right, team photo," <laughs> as if to say, "Come on, what's that all about?" So I think you know it's a bit tongue in cheek, isn't it? And and you know, doubtless that'll be remembered by Real Madrid fans and, and probably players for quite some time. We're not sure, of course, whether we are seeing Barca return to their former glory. That is to be confirmed. Closer to home, though, one side whose best days could look further behind them, I suppose. Is, is Everton. The Toffees were knocked out of the FA Cup by Crystal Palace on Saturday with a 4-0 scoreline giving Frank Lampard plenty to think about ahead of what is likely to be a relegation theme run to the end of the season. The former Chelsea boss said there was only so much he could do to give his players confidence, prompting some to question whether his words were too strong. Gents, football at the sharp end sees plenty of pressure on, on players and managers alike. Do you think Frank may live to regret criticising his own team or, or do you think it was justified in the circumstances? Well, I have to say, Ed, you looked glad all over. Um, <laughs> reading that out, by the way. Um, <laughs> yeah. oh, that's why he earns the big bucks, uh, yeah. <laughs> Look at that. I mean, no, what I have to say is, 
I said at the very beginning when he when he came in that it was a risky decision bringing Frank Lampard in. The jury was out, and that ultimately that's ever- ben, that's Ben River Radio Bingo, by the way. Yeah. Jury was out, Frank <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was. You know, I, he, he didn't really prove himself in his previous two jobs, and I, I thought it was a huge risk with a side that really are an aging side that seem all over the place. Um, and unfortunately, you're just seeing the rewards of that Burnley have found form and Frank look the media always had this thing don't they when a manager criticises his players they build up to, to be this bigger thing than it probably actually is yeah. so I'm not sure the players would have reacted to that however once the, the issue is once the media gets a storm going with a manager it's very hard to stop it and so if he, he's got to be very careful now with what he says because they're going to be they're going to be seeing that thing okay we've got him here so it could easily change for him very quickly I just think Unfortunately for Everton, right now, in my opinion, I don't know what you guys think, but in my opinion right now, they just can't seem to get any sort of run going and I don't see it happening anytime soon. Well, these are the exact words that the Lampard said. He said, there's only so much you can do to keep trying to butter someone up to get confidence. You're playing at the cutthroat end of football. This is the FA Cup quarterfinals. If you haven't got the confidence to play, you can flip it and say, have you got the balls to play? We didn't play that badly today. Palace didn't play that well. It was a lack of confidence and a lack of what I've just said. It wasn't tactics. Palace couldn't get out of their half in the first 20 minutes. I don't have a magic wand to get inside people's heads and change the resilience across a whole squad that's a work in progress so we just have to work on that as frustrating as it is for me and for the 4,000 fans who travelled down and and like you say Ben when you actually look at it in principle to go in an FA Cup quarterfinal you're one game 90 minutes away realistically uh, from, from Wembley and to put in the performance that they did given the start they had I don't think he's wrong necessarily no. but of course as you say once you put that out there into the media sphere it can become a stick for the press to come back and beat you with later on Will what do you think? Yeah I mean it surprises me a bit given the, the calibre of manager he played under that he he would take that approach to, to his players, I think. Mm. I think you look at Jose Mourinho, who's a complete expert at deflecting sort of criticism from his players. He does it unbelievably well. I mean, there's certain players he will go for, and I think that's when you know that he certainly does that in that, that typical third season, doesn't he, when he yeah. starts just losing the plot. But initially, he will just completely deflect everything. I think the press conference where he famously said three, three times um, was, <laughs> was, was actually in response to people having to go about his players in his squad. And no one was ever, no one was talking about the performance of Paul Pogba after that. They were talking about the fact Jose Mourinho stormed out of a press conference raising three fingers. So uh, it surprises me to see Frank Lampard, uh, so, so critical of players that he he ultimately uh, he, he's inherited and he seems he, he spoke so highly of them when he inherited them. It seems very bizarre to turn on them when actually, if anyone's going to go, it's not the players. It's probably him at the end of the season. If you know what I mean, it, 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 it's, I just find it a little bit bizarre, especially when you know he had a transfer window. He had a few weeks of transfer window. The defense is notoriously leaky, conceding four goals again, and he's brought in Donny Van de Beek and Deli Ali. It just it doesn't make much sense to me. Do you know what I mean? The, 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 the one area of the team they really were struggling was at the back, and he hasn't improved that. I think the, the buck sometimes does stop with the manager. And the, look, Everton have been underperforming for a long, long time, and there was a rot at the club with Rafa Benitez. But that, that it's not all on Rafa Benitez. And Frank Lampard needed to make some amends, and he just hasn't done that so far. Tom, Lampard was seen very much as the people's choice following what appeared to be an increasing sense of disconnect between the club, the board and the fans. I mean, the big question now, particularly as they as they look down the barrel, potentially of a relegation fight, is, is whether or not he was the right choice. What's your view on that? I mean, 
the dumpster fire that is Everton right now just started in such a bizarre way with the signing of Benitez, the selling of Lucas Digne, a French international defender, and this continual touting that Richarlison's, in fact, a world-class striker. And we're like seven or eight months in now, right? And the fans have this expectation that they're a top-four club, which is delusional at the best of times. But at the very top, at the very top management, the people running this club, there is a serious problem. I mean, Salomon Rondon was a signing this summer. He was supposed to supply the goals. I mean, no one was ever convinced by Yerry Mina. Like, Barcelona were just trying to get rid of this guy and trying to get him linked to everyone, and he's ended up at, 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 at Everton. And it, it feels like it's not exactly Frank's fault that whoever is in charge at this club has misspent half a billion pounds on players. And Frank's trying to come in, and you're, he's looking at these players being like, you all should be good. But my entire midfield is aging has-beens. I mean, I don't want to belabor the point, but, I mean, look at this. Look at who they've got in the midfield. Donny van der Beek, Della Alley, Fabian Del, Decore, Andre Gomes, and Allen. <laughs> it's like, a complete mismatch, None of these guys have achieved anything in years. Most of them are like reclamation projects, and that's who's in your, your wheel, in your... In the middle of the park, your 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 engine. It's curious, it's, the isn't it? The whole club is broken. I mean, I did I did say quite recently that I, I wouldn't want to be the guy who has to sit down and explain to to Fire Mashiri that he needs to rebuild his team because of the half billion pounds he spends on it. That's going to be a tricky conversation. Look, this is the big question. It is the six million dollar question, if you will. Will they stay up? Now, these are the fixtures that they have remaining in the Premier League this season. They go to West Ham on Sunday, the third of April. They then got Burnley, which is a Really, really big game. It's Manchester United, Crystal Palace at home, Leicester City, the Merseyside derby away at Liverpool. They host Chelsea, Leicester City away from home, Brentford, and they end the season away to Arsenal. So some really big names in there. Manchester United, as I say, Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool, all still left to play. You can't help but feel there's a couple of games there they really need to not only get points from, but actually definitively win. Do we think they're going to have enough to beat the drop, Will? Uh, can, I, don't, I don't see where more than six points comes from for that. I really don't. I think every one of those teams has got something to play for going into the last bit of the season. The only game they've won under Lampard, I think, is that Newcastle game, isn't it? And mm-hmm. that was 90 plus 10 or something, wasn't it? Where they, you know, they were... 99 arguably, minutes, yeah. Yeah, they were, they were quite fortunate, arguably, to, to get a win at all from it. I mean, I, I want them to stay up because I don't think, that, I don't think in any way, shape or form they're a, they're a club that belongs in the championship. Historically, certainly not. But I just can't see where the points are coming from there. Yeah, I'm very concerned. I mean, like you said, that the game they got their win in, they really could partly thank down to the guy that stuck himself to the goalpost. Because about those extra 10 minutes, they wouldn't have got the time to score. I, I think the big concern for me, they've all, a lot of Everton fans... Was that an assist? <laughs> but a lot of the fans there and, and maybe the officials around the club, and even Frank Lampard said it himself was, let's just get back to Goodison. We'll win a few games. We'll be all right. And it's, it's not happened, has it? I mean, I'll, just, I'll just throw the cat among the pigeons a little bit more here, as if I even could. Looking at Burnley, who are the other team that are on 27 games, just as Everton are, OK? They're a point behind Watford. Watford are 18th, Burnley are 19th on 21 points. Burnley's final fixtures, they've got Manchester City on Saturday. They've then got Everton. They've also got to play Norwich. They'll be playing Southampton. They'll be playing Watford. Um You've got to say that those fixtures probably look a little bit more favourable for Burnley. And if it is a lack of what Lampard said, a bit of a lack of balls, one team you really don't want to face is the Sean Dyche Burnley side, <laughs> I, I would say. So that game, all eyes are going to be on it because for me, that is, is absolutely huge. 
yeah, I mean, it's, it's monumental, isn't it? I mean, like, I don't, I don't think you ever want to play Burnley ever as any team, unless you're Manchester City, you always seem to stick five past them. I don't know. No other team ever scores against Burnley than Manchester City. It's bizarre, isn't it? And but, it's always a lot yeah, as well. It's never just one or two. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's very strange. But I can't, I just, I, you can see points come in from places there, I think, ultimately. Mm. And look, football's not as simple as being played on paper where you say they'll win that, draw that, lose that. It's never, it's never as black and white as that. There's twists and turns left in both the title race, the top four race, and, and the and the relegation places but I, it, it, I just can't see where those points are coming from for Everton and you can for Burnley I mean that game when they play each other in, in a few weeks is just absolutely massive well the state of affairs at Goodison Park that many fans feel can now be justifiably labelled as saga will continue of course when they face West Ham on Sunday kickoff in that one scheduled for 2pm as the Toffees fight to preserve their Premier League status Tom thanks so much for your thoughts we really enjoy having you on the show up next we'll be talking about the local coverage across the Thames Valley one more time across the Thames Valley this this is River Radio well now for some pop music try this the football show on River Radio this is extra time You're listening to Extra Time on River Radio and it's now time to turn our attention to our constituent clubs who are in action over the weekend and we begin with Reading who secured an important win over promotion chasing Blackburn. Josh Laurent got the goal, the only goal of the game, on 78 minutes and put five points between the Royals and the bottom three. Our resident correspondent Jacob Hawley spoke to Will about the victory and its importance. Massive win for the club, um, one that we probably wouldn't have expected going into the game. Uh, I think a lot of fans would have taken a draw from that. Blackburn currently sat in sixth. So to get a win against a side like that is absolutely brilliant. Obviously, the way we played as well was promising. There was you know, improvement defensively. I don't believe Blackburn took a shot on goal um, after we'd scored, which obviously shows that you know, in the past we've been guilty of scoring and you know, conceding shortly after and then opened, the floodgates opened. But... We went ahead and we kept our composure and I think that's that's the most important thing to take away from this result really. You know, those those little improvements and we're starting to look like a side that is sort of edging away from this, this relegation battle. How many points do you think the Royals will need ideally to stay up? Good question. I think uh, it's hard to say at this point. Obviously Barnsley we've seen have picked up a little bit of form, getting wins here and there. They beat Bristol City 2-0 the other day. Um, so yeah obviously a lot of teams start to pick up form Peterborough picked up a win the other day got a draw at Bournemouth so it does get difficult obviously Derby if you look at them in theory they're 21 points more than they've actually collected so obviously they're a side who's better than us on paper Um, it's going to be a tough battle but we have started to pick up a few points that will certainly serve us well in the long run I think now with eight games remaining looking at the other side's games I think sort of maybe two wins from that might be enough with the gap that we've managed to create over the past few days I think two wins would be would be enough to keep us up just nine players whose contracts aren't up in the summer who do you think are the most important players to tie down for next season Uh, I think yeah like you say we're in a real tricky position this summer with a number of players whose contracts are up um the club has to sit down and make a decision about who they can afford to keep, who they want to keep, need to keep, uh, and who they can afford to let go. Certainly, some players will be on very high wages uh, and they'll be keen to get them off the wage books. There'll be players like John Swift, who most likely won't want to stick around. Uh, he's had interest from you know top championship clubs and also some Premier League clubs too. So it'd be amazing if he was to sign a new deal. 
But I think, you know, players such as um, Rina Mota, he's a really important player to tie down. And, and Josh Lawrence too, I think. Um, you know, these midfield players at the moment, the only two midfield players or senior midfield players whose contracts aren't up in the summer are Ovia Jaria and Dejan Tetuk. So for me, that's that's a really the position that we really need to look at, making sure that we keep some of these players and, and avoid being in a tricky position in the summer where we're trying to recruit an, an entire new team, really. So we'll have to try and avoid that at all costs, but it will be interesting to see who does stay on and who parts ways with the club this summer. Well, there we have it then. A fantastic result for Reading, certainly. And let's get stuck right into the questions. 11 days ago, okay, Reading went to Nottingham Forest, obviously a team that are chasing promotion. They lost 4-0. They conceded a goal within the first 20 seconds. Since then, they've earned a draw at Bournemouth, who are second in the table and have beaten a playoff-chasing Blackburn. Those are massive, massive results, aren't they? And we did say previously that the teams that are going to stay up are going to need a few of those unexpected victories or draws to get them over the line. It's the story of the Championship and, and the EFL in general. Things can change so quickly in these in these divisions. And we were saying last week about how Reading almost looked resigned to the drop, that Barnsley have got a proven track record of survival, that they're, they're found, finding their feet. But like you said, it's not just the points, it's who they've done it against mm. as well. You know, Blackburn. Bournemouth. These are two things. Paul Lynch just put our show on Spotify on in the dressing room. And I'd like to think so. Done, he? Yeah, I'd like to think so. You know, <laughs> conspiracy theory. But, <laughs> but look, we we spent a lot of time berating Paul Paul Lynch. He's saying, "Look, the River Radio guys think I'm useless. Go and prove them wrong." But honestly, I, even though you can't say it's all over because it is only five points, I was just saying to your farewell, like it is only five points. Let's not forget that. There's still, I think, it's about twenty to twenty-one points to play for. So it could easily change. However. With Barnsley coming up, I mean, it's put them in a great position, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think it has. And I think, I mean, like, it's, it's tough It's tough with, with them under Paul Lintz so far, isn't it? Because there's been some games that haven't necessarily reflected it. I think the Blackpool one certainly didn't, the scoreline didn't at all reflect the performance where I, I remember speaking to Benji and he just sort of said they just had to go for it in the last few minutes and that left them completely wide open at the back, slightly false scoreline. I think that the Forest one, I mean, it's worth remembering just how good Forest are. They put four past Leicester in the FA Cup, didn't they? And that, that Keenan Davis looks, looks a really good player. So I think it's worth remembering in that to beat Blackbird and do the things that you know do the way the things they have they become a lot more disciplined and I think that's ultimately what Paul Ince has, has been looking to instill and will look to instill going forward so uh, five points like I said it's not that many I think it's enough and I think as long as they don't get beat by Barnsley when they play them I think they'll be okay I mean yeah look if they were to get the win over Barnsley it'll be eight points mm. between them and the drop zone and really it's only those four clubs in it so Derby who of course had that 21 point deduction that Jacob mentioned you've got Peterborough who Ben's got a bit of a yeah. Problem with, but we'll skip past that. Oh, and Barnsley, who of course <laughs> earlier on looked absolutely dead and buried, and now have you know put together a run that sees them very much in the conversation. This is a must-win, surely. This must be a must-win. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is. It, I, I think it is, isn't it? And it is, and it isn't at the same time because I think, like I said, as long as they don't beat them and they don't gain those points on them, there's so few games left. That Reddit, don't get me, it's a missed opportunity and they're, they're, they're keeping themselves in, in it longer than they have to be if they don't beat them. But if, away at Barnsley, given the situation that's completely in Reddin's hands, I think you take a point 
at Oakwell. I really do, especially the way they've been playing there lately. They were a little bit unlucky against Sheffield United at the weekend, Barnsley, I thought. Had a goal ruled out in the first half to go 1-0 up. If that stands, it's a completely different game against a very, very, very um, sort of informed Sheffield United side as well. I, I think you take a point there based on how things are going. And, and it's, it's worth remembering, although the Blackburn result's great and they have been more disciplined, like I said, they're still in that relegation battle for a reason, aren't they? Yeah, I think the benefit Reading have is there's only one team essentially fighting yeah. for that place. Obviously, Derby unfortunately it looks like it's going to be a step too far I know we've said Peterborough are a very poor side so it's basically between Barnsley and Reading so at least they know that okay if we win this game we're basically there like you said we're not fully there there could still be I mean we saw Wickham last season put a real good run together I mean there's no saying that Barnsley don't win six out of the last seven for example but like you said it would give them the best chance possible and I'd like to think that Paul Lintz believes they can get more than one win in their last seven games. And, you know, Reading have just put together a draw and a, a win. Well, who's to say they can't get another two, three wins in a row? And that, that would see them over the line. So, yeah, if, if they lose, however, like it's you said, on, yeah. looking over their shoulder again. So it, I'd say, I, I know you said it doesn't matter, but I think Reading, basically Reading's survival comes down to this game. Looking at the rest of their running, it's eight games left until the end of the season. It does look manageable because fixtures after Barnsley, which we all agree is a hugely important game, are against Hull, Swansea, Cardiff, Stoke, all of whom are in the bottom half. But they have to keep putting points on the board. It's not enough to just look at those games and think we could get something out of that. They actually have to do it. And that sometimes is where teams who get relegated fall short. And and obviously what we were talking about with Wickham a little while ago, which was a run-in that, that looked like they only had to play three teams inside the top ten, but there was a seven-game run where they didn't get a win. And, of course, it's that expectation versus reality again where the pressure is almost heightened as a result because, actually, you, you look like you should be getting wins and you're not. I mean, I, I know exactly what you mean. I think those teams are, are really... The games are a lot harder than they look in that oh, specific yeah. scenario as well because the danger at this point of the season is you play teams with nothing left to play for and you think it's an easy walkover win. Not that, Red, not that Reading are in any, any position to think that this season, but, you know, Stoke, they've lost a lot of games on the spin. They won't have too, too much to play for. Cardiff probably... They're probably... They're not in that relegation battle again. They're nowhere near the top. Same with Swansea and Hull. So, but those teams with nothing to play for. These players are playing for contracts, putting themselves in shop windows, all that sort of thing these can be incredibly incredibly difficult difficult games um obviously you'd rather play those teams in the teams in the top half of the table 100 percent. but they're not always as easy as always as, as easy as they seem and i think that certainly might be the case so picking up points as and where you can is just absolutely vital and i also think when, when we always talk about teams playing so-called easier teams the likes of Stoke and anyone from Blackpool to, to Hull, at the end of the day, they have been better than Reading this season. So even though they don't have anything to play for, they're still a better team. They've got arguably better players. So it's not a, a walk in the park or a foregone conclusion that just because a team doesn't have anything to play for, that, oh, we're going to turn up and beat them easy. No, they've been better than you throughout the season for a reason. So it's still going to be incredibly difficult. Well, that crunch game at Oakwell against Barnsley kicks off at 3pm on Saturday. And we do, of course, wish Paul Lintz and his men the very best for that one. At the top of League One, meanwhile, Wickham continued their hunt for promotion with a point at Portsmouth. The chairboys are yet to record a league victory at Fratton Park, but remain in pursuit of the top six, despite the frustrating 0-0 draw, which was the third clean sheet for the club in as many games. The result leaves them eighth in the table, a point behind Sunderland, who occupy the final playoff berth. That draw, as I say, three consecutive 
consecutive clean sheets. They couldn't find a way past Gavin Bazinu. A point away from home, Ben, you're our sort of resident Wickham man, is always welcome, but there is a slight sense that you wanted a little bit more from that game, certainly as we approach the business end of the season. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, Portsmouth are a, a poor side from what I saw. They're a shell of the team that I've, I've seen at Fratton Park the last few times I've been there. The intimidation fact wasn't there. The players just didn't seem... Uh, as good as Wickham players and that's, that's not, I don't usually get to say that like you said um, the Portsmouth keeper had a brilliant game and he's actually tied with David Stockdale for the most clean sheets throughout this season that's 15 um, both of them are tied on it's a lot of clean sheets it's a lot of clean it, sheets yeah. isn't it but when you bear in mind Wickham have conceded 47 goals and then in the other games they've kept 15 Five clean of them sheets. against Cheltenham <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it was definitely a case of what could have been we didn't really have any period of the game where I felt under pressure and so when you've got a game like that you really do need to take your chances and the Anis Mameti had a brilliant chance which yes it was a great save however I don't know if you guys have seen it but he has to score he just has to find the the bottom corner and again Sam Vokes in the second half goes around the keeper you think it's in and then the keeper gets back so yeah an incredibly frustrating point but an, another clean sheet isn't it I, th- I think Fratton Park as well is a notoriously hard place to go isn't it I mean it's it's f- for the smaller sides to go in there like no disrespect to your Morecambe's and your Fleetwoods and all that sort of thing it's it's a scalp and it's a day out you've been there now enough times for it to it probably not fall into that category yeah. and, and it's two big teams sort of clashing with each other um, obviously the, distent, the defensive strength we've come to expect has been on show in the last few games is it too obvious to pinpoint that on the return of Tafazoli and Stewart in the starting lineup? yeah I've seen a lot of Wickham fans and even Ainsworth allude to the, the return of those two and I, I don't think it's fair just to say it's down to them ultimately David Stockdale has kept three clean sheets in three games so you do have to give him some credit he has made some big saves at important times also going back to a back four I think has been important now Jordan Obita has missed the last two games which has slightly exposed poor old Joe Jacobson with his lack of pace at, you know, in his mid-30s now and that's partly the reason they play five at the back foot for Joe so he doesn't get exposed. However, it seems to be working. Jason McCarthy's found form so... I think ultimately those five at the back are the reason. It's not just the two in the middle that are, should be taking all the glory. Listen, don't knock your mid-30s. I did the park run on Saturday and <laughs> recorded a personal best. So, I mean, I was also looking for a way to crowbar that into the show. Thank you, Ben, for, I did for see, giving... I, I saw it on Facebook and wondered how long it was. <laughs> 24 minutes. So, 24 minutes, 52 seconds, if you're asking. But that's that's neither here nor there, which is still actually quite quite a poor time, in fact. But um, we, won't, we won't go there. Look, Ben, it's the big question again. What points total? do you think Wickham are going to need? Because Gareth Ainsworth has said he thinks it, it might well be the record of teams getting points on the board and not going up automatically. He's even talked in, in, in terms of you know a team potentially getting 80, 85 and, and finishing third. Yeah, I think you're going to need 80 at least, surely. Because, I mean, you've got seven games left. You're going to have to win at least four or five. Yeah. And you can't really afford more than one defeat. Because you've got two teams below you, that, and maybe Portsmouth not necessarily, but Ipswich are only four points off us. So they, they probably still believe they've got a chance. The problem is, is that everyone feels the same as you do. So even though you, if you're a Wickham fan, you think, OK, we've just got to win five games. But Sunderland are thinking the same thing. So are Oxford, so are Plymouth, so are Sheffield Wednesday, so are MK Dons, so are Ipswich. So it's <laughs> incre- that, that's, do you know what I mean? There's that yeah, many yeah. teams. So it's going to be so hard. I just think it's, if anything, it's not in our hands, is it? We've just got to hope that 
teams drop points against one another or pick up a surprise defeat and we capitalise, which we haven't done all season. We haven't capitalised when we've had the chance. Do, do you think that's because, though, that, so like you said, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have to be a ridiculous... 80 points to get in the playoffs is just <sighs> absolutely... It's crazy, isn't Athlete, it? I mean, isn't it? so, but do you think that's because, certainly from an outside perspective looking at it, other than the top 10, the league doesn't seem particularly strong this year. Like, do you know what I mean? There, there, are, there are 10 probably fairly sized, very good football insides there, but below that, it, it seems like everyone's playing either Cambridge or Cheltenham every week and there's not much difference. Do you know what I mean? I, I'm not sure. I, I think the top 10 are just so strong comparatively yeah. that I think in any previous season, those 10 would be in the playoffs a combination of the six yeah. uh, or promoted I, I look at I mean Rotherham. All, all ten have a case to go up don't exactly they, really? and I, I think that's maybe more of a case of maybe because I'm a Wickham fan and being biased but <laughs> maybe it's more of a case of just those teams are so strong not necessarily the league being so weak because ultimately Cambridge United I know we beat them quite comfortably however they did beat Newcastle in the FA Cup yeah. um, and there's teams at the bottom of the league which have proved to be tough tough away days and, and tough night, uh, tough days for us so no, I think it's a case of just an incredibly strong top 10. Mm. I mean, I, I've just looked at that. The top 11 of League One, six of them have been in the Premier League in the last 20 years. That's I mean, that that's, sums it up. That's, that's you know, incredible, isn't it? I mean, no game now also until the, the 2nd of April against Doncaster, which is, which is quite some time. For you, is that a, a help or a hindrance at this stage of the season? Tired legs, perhaps a little bit of chance to, to, to rest and recuperate? Or do you think you'd need to be in that groove of playing regularly? Well, I, I think it's both, isn't it? Because like you just said, there's a chance for tired legs to get some rest and you'd like to think as a fan, okay, the players are going to have a nice week or two off and they're going to come back mentally recharged, physically fresh. However, we've seen it, I can't remember if it was before Christmas or just after, but Wickham did have a slight break yeah, and they came back and they struggled for mm. two or three games. You can't afford that now. And Reading had one as well, didn't they? They had yeah. a massive break, about two weeks, and they came back and, and it looked to have done them no good at all. And, and at this stage of the season, you, you really can't afford it. You can't have two games or even one game to warm yourself up. So well, I don't know what the solution is. Maybe they do a couple of games behind closed doors, which I'm sure they will. Um, because I'm no, I know that Gareth won't want them coming back and having one game just to pass off as a warm-up because we literally don't have enough games left to do that. No, exactly, that's right. And it's not all good news either, is it? We do have to touch on this. Last night in the in the Berkshire and, and Buckinghamshire Cup, we can went out in the semi-final to Ascot United. It was nil-nil in normal time. They lost 3-1 on, pre- on penalties. Prisbeck, Farino, Grimmer all played alongside some trialists as well. First and foremost, and we have to make this incredibly clear, what a massive well done it is for yeah. Ascot, first and foremost. A record attendance at their ground. It's the biggest result probably in their history. And they will face either Reading or MK Dons in the final. Look, it's not a competition we necessarily expect Wickham to take terribly seriously. But nonetheless, they would have wanted to win that game, irrespective of who they fielded, surely. Yeah, they would have liked to have, have won the cup. I know we've won the Burks and Bucks a few times. It's always been a nice, nice little thing to win going into the end of the season. Um, however, like you said, there was there were several trialists playing, let alone youth players. Um, so it was a mismatch of a team. Um, yeah, okay, Jack Grimm was playing Prisbeck. However, when you've got so many other players around them that they've never played with before, I don't really know what we can take from the game. Whereas for Ascot, it's their biggest game of the season. So. I wasn't disappointed or upset or angry. I was actually, you know what, really happy for Ascot because what an occasion for them. They get to go to the final. I'm not sure who they're playing in the final if that's been decided yet. But Either Reading or MK Dons, Reading that's or MK totally Dons. confirmed. 
I mean, what, a, what an occasion for them. So absolutely yeah. huge. And, and like we say, it's, it's really more of a well done to Ascot Risley rather than rather than a criticism of, of Wickham. And we certainly do wish the Chairboys the best of luck in their next league game, which, as mentioned, will be at home to Doncaster on the 2nd of April. Elsewhere, Maidenhead United completed a late comeback against Southend United last night. The visitors took the lead through Tom Clifford, but the game finished 2-1 to the Magpies, courtesy of a late winner from Ryan Upwood. Clifford's opening goal came just after the hour mark, but nine minutes later, Later, the host responded through Wilder Haviland to draw level before upward poked home following a goal-mouth scramble with just seven minutes to spare to seal the points for Alan Devonshire's men. It's less positive for Reading women, however, who were left to analyse back-to-back losses against both halves of Manchester. Kelly Chambers' side's latest defeat came against WSL heavyweights Manchester City, having lost out to Manchester United less than a week before. The Royals will remain optimistic ahead of their visit to Aston Villa this weekend. They now sit seventh in the table. And finally, Everyone at River Radio and especially Extra Time would like to join Gareth McCleary, Aaron Ramsey and Chris Gunter in offering their congratulations to Bracknell Town. The Robins are celebrating promotion from the Isthmian South Central League and will be playing step-free football next year for the first time in the club's history. That concludes our local news and up next, it's time for some offside opinions. Across the Thames Valley. One more time. Across the Thames Valley. This, this is River Radio. Well, now for some pop music. Try this. The Football Show on River Radio. This is Extra Time. Welcome back. You're listening to Extra Time. And as we're fast approaching full time here on River Radio, we must, of course, tackle our regular feature, Offside Opinions. Now, for those who are familiar with this show, they know that this sees one of our panellists put forward an opinion that goes against the footballing grain. It's then up to them to justify it whilst under fire from the rest of the panel, who will ultimately decide whether the opinion is onside and has some merit or simply offside. This week, it's my turn to submit an opinion. And to change things up, I I wanted to see how the panel reacted to some of the game's biggest conspiracy theories. Now, I swear on my life, these are absolutely things that people have tweeted in response to a question that went out on Twitter very recently. And to ensure to ensure your responses are totally authentic, <laughs> have we ever had I've, backtracking before the I've kept them all. <laughs> absolutely (laughs) under wraps none of you know what i'm about to say but these are all absolutely legitimate right the first one is and i quote burnley have never had an away kit (laughs) (laughs) they haven't any you're back on the money any comment to make on that burnley (laughs) have never ever had an away kit i don't think they'd be allowed would they (laughs) well they never play away do they so They, they always play a turf ball all the time. So, so, yeah. so there you go. Right. Well, I mean, that was fairly easy, yeah, wasn't it? Now, yeah, that's I'm, onside, that we one. do, we do, uh, as whilst we, we're rapidly approaching the end of the show, we do need to fill time here. So yeah. feel free to give me a little bit more <laughs> when it comes to your opinions, because I'm not awash with these. All right. The next one's an interesting one to debate. And again, as I say, this is absolutely what somebody has tweeted in response to something that was put out recently on Twitter. Gareth Bale is using Real Madrid as a fitness regime so he can just be ready to play for Wales. Yeah, I can. I, yeah, <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can see that, but I, I also think there's it, it goes a little bit deeper than that. That I don't actually know if he wants to be there at all. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I, he'd probably rather be in Wales. For I don't think he, he cares about club football anymore. No, does he? I no, don't think he actually I, cares. But but at the same time, if if they're stupid enough to give him a six year hypothetically 500 grand a week contract, then I'd be sat there on a sunbed playing golf as well. If you know what I mean, to be to be completely is, fair. Is this? 
is this the first gym that pays you to train there? Is that what they're doing? Like, he's the definition of an influencer. Yeah. We actually don't care if you ever do anything for us. Just just turn up every now and then. We talk about backtracking. I should I should say that Tom's Tom, Tom's day job is is marketing for for a gym. So <laughs> to be fair, maybe maybe you're onto something there. But it, it is an interesting one, isn't it? Of course, because Gareth Bale, when he went to uh, Real Madrid, was was kind of seen as this sort of star who was only going to be on his meet meteoric rise that he had been at Spurs and was perhaps going to be playing alongside Cristiano Ronaldo could he get to that level was the answer, wasn't and, it, it, and it has of course descended into something that, that hasn't resembled that and goes to show that not all big money moves work out as we've subsequently seen I wasn't terribly taken uh, taken with him at Spurs last year either I, I do have to say I mean what, what were we surprised at the level that he brought to the game considering obviously the pedigree that he had left the Premier League with you know nearly 10 years earlier yeah, it, it just he seems a shadow of his former self, doesn't he? It, mentally and physically, he just seems shot of any sort of confidence or passion or desire to actually achieve what he could have achieved. I feel like, like I just said, I, I, he cares about Welsh football, he cares about international football. However, it just appears that he's achieved so much in his career, maybe he didn't expect to achieve that. And we, let's not forget that not everyone has the same goals starting out as a kid. And it can be for some people very hard to raise those goals when you feel like you've achieved everything he won the Champions League like he has achieved several times yeah he achieved and that crazy goal he scored in the final so maybe it was just a case of someone that saw his career coming to an end because physically he's not the same and he just thought I'm just going to take away the stress and just enjoy I do have to put this in as a caveat as well do do we think you know obviously it's unquantifiable but the effect of coming back to Spurs with no fans during coronavirus to some extent might have impacted upon the impact he was able to have because what a homecoming it would have been had they had fans in that great stadium yeah yeah I mean I I understand what you're saying about Bale coming back Ben let's not let's not remember let's let's sorry let's try and remember he's about sort of seven or eight years older than he was when he when he left he's not going to be the same player coming back is he? he's not this nippy sort of left winger that's that's going to taxi from icon I think it famously was in the Champions League wasn't it he's he's not that player anymore and he he was never going to be that player anymore people can be so oblivious to, to the foreign game that they don't actually realize that because it, it can sometimes feel when a player goes and plays abroad that you're just dropping them somewhere for a bit and they'll be exactly the <laughs> same when they come back yeah. it, was, it was expected of Cristiano Ronaldo and people have had to adjust that to the fact that he's not the player he was as he's well 30, what's, wrong yes, no, I, what's, what's wrong with Cristiano Ronaldo what's wrong with Cristiano Ronaldo we'll come to you Tom mate all right it was his mentality that changed yeah but but Cristiano Ronaldo isn't doing 10 no, step overs and beating a man 10 times now he's sticking one in from 35 yards instead you know what I mean and I, I think this is the thing that he was never going to be the same player he was when he left and Real Madrid shot him of all his confidence anyway yeah. they, they, they ruined him and his career so I, I'd find it very hard to love a game when you're being booed by fans for not passing it to, to, to one of your teammates to be completely honest okay I've got one more that I absolutely have to crowbar in just to hear Tom's reaction because this one's Manchester United themed as I've said all along I promise you I've not made these up these are things people have tweeted in response to a question that went out on Twitter about football's biggest conspiracy theories that, that people claim they think might have some merit or some mileage this one I think is perhaps the most interesting of all of them Sir Alex Ferguson is secretly enjoying Manchester United's demise because it makes him look good (laughs) Tom what you got 
probably. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. You've got to derive some joy from the situation because the rest of us are dying. Do you not think, even if he were initially, do you not think the joy of I told you so when it came to this is probably too big for a rebuild, I don't fancy this anymore, has maybe worn off by now? I warned you all. I told you this was going to happen. I said, get out, get out now. The entire management structure left with me and you guys keep keep smacking did your he, head Did he not pick wall. Moyes, though? Yeah, I mean, the, mm. the story goes that it was he who kind of picked his own mm. successor and that David Moyes was the one that he identified. Of course, that didn't work out. Moyes was replaced initially by Ryan Giggs and then Louis van Gaal. Louis van Gaal was then replaced by Jose Mourinho. And we and we go on and on. Oh. I mean, the thing about it is, I mean, even just comedic terms, like, as I say, if you were to say, well, you know, I said that, I derived some enjoyment from it at the start because, yeah, everyone <laughs> saw that I was, in fact, right. Kind of like Mourinho said when he finished second in the league and was like, I told you that was my biggest achievement and everyone's looking at that going do you know what actually fair play um given what he's won but also the fact that Bergson's had to go to every game since eventually you think like this is a bit of a waste of time wouldn't you but they, they read they reckon his wife's just getting sick of it don't they like she, she's she's never had him at home that much so it's just like right get out get out alex i'm fed up so um, honestly do you do you think there do you think there might be something in that no, not really. Uh, I think I, you know, he's got a stand named after him. He's got all the fans behind him. He, he the club runs in his blood. Uh, but I do, I do imagine every now and then he's just sat there shaking his head, like, "God, that was a good decision." And oh unless, God, unless he's an incredible actor, that incredibly upset-looking face we see on TV every Saturday when Manchester start to lose it, no, they always find him in the crowd yeah. every single time. I mean, he always sits in the same place. Yeah, very true. And, yeah. and we now know where that is. But I mean, if if you're right, Ben, and if he is a talented actor, he should be on the list of Oscars by now because I mean it has been quite a, a remarkable demise hasn't it honestly I think the football conspiracy theories thing it, it's so great to delve into because there are some absolutely wild ones out there just look on Twitter and see what some people are saying and some of them are hilarious I think without a shadow of a doubt Burnley not having an away kit is 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 fantastic I'm going to have to Google um, it see if there's, a lot, there's a lot of Burnley <laughs> theme ones on there there's a lot of people saying that everyone's down on Burnley look guys that's all we've got time for thank you all so much for joining us Will, Ben and of course Tom online and thank you the listeners as well for getting getting involved with us. We look forward to speaking to you again next week.